Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Based on demographics alone, Pakistan is a country whose startup ecosystem should already have been thriving for many years now. It has, for starters, the fifth largest population in the world, approaching 230 million. And that population is both overwhelmingly young, with a median age of 22, and overwhelmingly bilingual, with the fourth largest number of English speakers in the world. Add to that one of the fastest growing middle classes, more than 100 million mobile broadband subscribers, and hundreds of thousands of tech professionals, and you have all the makings of a fertile market for new enterprises and digital services. Yet until recently, venture or growth funding in Pakistan was barely a trickle compared to similar countries in the Middle East, North Africa region, or in other parts of Asia. In the last couple of years, however, Pakistan has begun to live up to its entrepreneurial potential, with global VCs and other foreign investors making significant bets on local startups and many regulatory and cultural barriers beginning to soften. To gain a valuable understanding of the changing dynamics of this key global startup market, including continuing challenges and growing opportunities. We are pleased today to be joined by two experts based in the region. Ataf Awan is the founder and managing partner of Indus Valley Capital, a Pakistan-focused fund he launched in his native country after working as a tech executive in Silicon Valley for several years. Abdur Rahim Syed is a McKinsey partner based in Dubai who co-leads the firm's startup work in the region and himself worked in Silicon Valley earlier in his career. Atif Abdurrahim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Atif, you launched Indus Valley Capital in 2019 after working high-ranking positions at both Microsoft and LinkedIn. What has been changing in the Pakistan startup ecosystem in recent years that made you decide it was the right time to focus on it in this way? The funny thing about this is I didn't see myself moving back to Pakistan at all, let alone start a Pakistan-focused VC fund until I found myself in a position where I knew I had to do it. What happened is that I decided to take a year off after leaving LinkedIn, Uh, this is 2018, and spent about half of it in Pakistan just spending time with my parents. That's when some Pakistani founders started reaching out to me, seeking advice on growth, product, or fundraising. What was mind-boggling for me was that between 2016 and 2018, Pakistani startups were averaging about $10 million a year in VC funding. That is five cents per capita. It's about one third of a basis point of the GDP. And that did not make any sense whatsoever. Um, And if you looked at MENA next door, MENA was doing $800 million in analyzed VC funding, so an 80 to 1 ratio. And when you looked at fundamentals in Pakistan, which I started looking at closely, it's the fifth largest country, 200 million plus people. Median age is 22, which makes it the fourth largest Gen Z and younger population. It's also the fourth largest English speaking population and the fourth largest absolute increase in middle class. So that foundational elements are all in place. And then you had this population increasingly connected to internet. We had more than 50 million broadband subscribers back in 2018. Now it's 110 million. And the tech talent to build those startups was there as well. You had 300,000 plus tech professionals. Given all those foundational elements in place, I realized that it was just a matter of time. We're at the cusp of this inflection point of a very large economy making that offline to online transition. We've seen that happen in US, in China, Indonesia, India, and whenever that happens, that creates massive opportunities 
for impact as well as financial opportunity. So that made the decision very obvious and quick for me. And I knew if I didn't do it, I'd regret it. So I decided to move back, started in Disvali Capital, which is uh, Pakistan-focused early stage VC. Abdul Rahim, you also worked in Silicon Valley earlier in your career, first at eBay and then at McKinsey, and you're now based in Dubai. For years, the Middle East has far outpaced Pakistan in attractive VC funds, as Atif pointed out. But the gap seems to be starting to close a bit. Why, in your view, did it take so long for Pakistan's startup ecosystem to really start to take off, despite the fact that they had this foundation that Atif was talking about? That's a great question. Just to clarify, the gap is certainly closing. But in reality, the whole region is accelerating. Pakistan's accelerating faster. If you take, for example, Saudi Arabia, the largest economy in the MENA region, they had 148 million USD in VC funding in 2020. In 2021, they had 548 million. That's a roughly tripling and a half in one year. Now, Pakistan is on a faster trajectory, so the gap is closing. The question you ask is a very important one. What took so long, as Atif noted, this is a top five country in terms of young population size, in terms of English speaking, very large base engineering talent. What took so long? I think that is a macroeconomic question. And if you look at the macroeconomy of Pakistan, it's been long dominated by agriculture, by conglomerates that often have captive businesses, i.e. there's not a burning platform, a driving reason to innovate, to take risks. I'll give you one example. Take gross capital formation, which is a critical enabler of future growth. Pakistan's gross capital formation in the last couple of years is roughly 15% of GDP. That's half of India at 30% and less than half of Bangladesh at 32%. So hopefully this now changes. Right? The fact that we have a significant acceleration in the startup space, we have a lot of disruption coming, a lot of innovation coming. This means the corporates, the conglomerates will either join by helping scale and helping invest in the space, or will beat by innovating. In either case, it'd be a positive outcome for the country. Atif, you have a unique perspective being involved in Pakistan right now. You're serving on boards, investing in some of the most successful startups so far. What particular sectors or horizontals are dominating as the scene emerges? So it's been super exciting seeing this dramatic rise of Pakistani startups over the last couple of years. In 2021, Pakistani startups raised close to $350 million in VC funding. So that ratio of 80 to 1 relative to MENA is now down to 7 to 1, which is more or less in line with the GDP ratios. And what we've seen that if you break that down, a vast majority of that has been e-commerce startups. Uh, and this is very, very typical of emerging markets. At the beginning, you see founders going after the largest chunks of economy, waiting to be online, and that tends to be e-commerce, followed by logistics. And that's what has dominated the Pakistani startup ecosystem for the past couple of years. We are seeing fintech emerge as a major category as well. In parallel, we've also started seeing digitization of education and health sectors, which is pretty exciting due to the high impact it can have. So in 2021, more than half of all funding has been e-commerce startups, which is split between the B2C and B2B startups. Uh, on the B2C side, it's ranged from commerce startups offering quick delivery of groceries and convenience items to online ticketing, to pharmacy delivery, to fashion shopping. On the B2B side, we're seeing this rapid digitization of the informal retail sector of economy, which is essentially mom and pop corner stores that we call Kiryana stores in Pakistan. And 
Fintech now is rising on the back of some positive regulatory changes, including introduction of new EMI and digital banking licenses. In terms of a couple of notable examples, I'll mention two of the most well-funded startups. Airlift, it's a quick commerce startup that has raised over $100 million in funding. They offer 30-minute delivery of grocery, pharmacy, household items, but have also expanded to electronics. And they have some very notable investors. So they're backed by First Round Capital, which is the earliest investor in Uber, Square, Notion, and Roblox, and typically doesn't invest much outside U.S. They've also gotten funding from Josh Buckley, Harry Stebbing, some of the leading solo capitalists, as well as founders of Twitter, DoorDash, TransferWise, and many other top startups in the Valley. The other one I would mention is Bazaar, which is a B2B commerce and fintech startup. They've also raised over $100 million in funding. So if you look at last several years, you know, there's a little over 500 million fundings, Airlift and Bazaar constitute 200 of that. And Bazaar's investors also include some top tier investors like Target Global, Dragnear, Acrew. They are essentially building the operating system for B2B commerce in Pakistan with a platform that covers the marketplace, last mile logistics, software, and fintech offerings. So what's happening is that in a large untapped market, when these startups are coming, they can grow very, very rapidly. And that's very exciting to see. Just full disclosure, Airlift and Bazaar are our portfolio companies. In fact, these were our first two investments. Abdur Rahim, I'm not sure if it's too early, given how young these startups, to look at the split between early stage capital and later stage funding. But I know some markets, other regions, early stage capital has been relatively easier to get, but the later stage funding has been more of a challenge to take off. Is that a concern for Pakistan? Is it too early to judge? It is a concern, but it's not an uncommon concern among similar markets. Were we to have this conversation two years ago, we would be talking about, well, Daniel, is there enough capital for Series A? At this point, it's clear there is enough capital for pre-seed, for seed, for Series A. Is there capital for Series B? Well, Atif mentioned Airlift. They just closed a large Series B round recently, right? And they have funding north of $100 million now as well. But that's one example. The real question is, as we go forward, will the funding continue to flow in and at what speed? And I think there are three drivers of this question. The first is very obvious, the global macro venture capital environment. There's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of global investments. Some of it's flowing towards Pakistan at an accelerating rate. Will that remain generous? Will that remain liquid? Right. That's the obvious one. I think a second driver is in e-commerce and logistics. These are working capital heavy startup spaces. Growth is very clear in a large consumer base, but growth is expensive. So can we begin to pivot to spaces where growth is less expensive and startups are less reliant on significantly large amounts of funding? Fintech is a great idea, right? We begin to head in that direction. What beyond Fintech can the startup space next go to? The third driver, I think, and this is often under-discussed, and it's under-discussed because Pakistan is a 220 million person country. It's huge. It's large. Is can Pakistani startups actually go beyond Pakistan? Because once you go beyond Pakistan, go regional, go global, go to the U.S. market, the U.K. market, or go to the media markets, you begin to tap into other funding pools. And there's a portfolio risk element of your Series B, Series C, Series D being solved. There's a startup. It's a B2B food delivery platform called Retailo. They recently raised a $36 million Series A round. They 
are headquartered in Saudi, but they operate in Pakistan, they operate in Saudi, they operate in UAE. The founders are Pakistani. We need more stories like that, where Pakistani companies actually succeed in scale in Pakistan and in parallel scale in other markets too. That would also help. And Atif, what is your view of the potential for going global for internationalization? It's obviously a challenge for tons of startups all over the world making that move from their home market to regions far afield. Is that something that you think is going to naturally come or do certain things have to happen to make that a reality? I agree with Abdul Rahim that this can be a very strong driver for continued momentum and growth. And what's exciting is that we're starting to see it. Retailo is a fantastic example. They've shown this can be done very early. And prior to that, Kareem proved that model as well, although it started in UAE. Uh, another example is that of Zameen, which started from Lahore, Pakistan. It's a real estate startup. They expanded out of Pakistan into the MENA region and ended up moving their headquarters to UAE. And that's a unicorn now. So we're seeing this appetite among very ambitious founders to say, look, Pakistan is a great market. And yes, you can build very large companies. Uh, but now that we've gotten those early stages of funding, why not go over the world? Why not go even bigger? And I think we'll continue seeing that. What we haven't seen a lot of is building for the US market or the Europe market. So more of the enterprise focused SaaS plays or deep tech plays. And I think that is a matter of evolution. So right now it's still Pakistani startup system, very, very nascent. But eventually I think it would be really exciting to start building more pure software startups and deep tech startups, which cater to these very, very large markets in the US and Europe. And Abdul Rahim, we've already touched a little bit upon regulatory issues. In your view, what are the unlocks that have to happen for continued funding and innovation growth, whether it's regulatory changes or how the private sector operates? A lot of it comes down to continued momentum. The evidence from funding rounds and success of startups, even exits like Karim, as Atif mentioned, inspire and push a new generation of students and professionals to go into the entrepreneurship space. So a lot is going to happen organically as long as we continue momentum. And the secular trend of growth is clear. The question is the speed. At what speed will it continue? Are there regulatory unlocks that can help ease this? For sure. I think Atif mentioned, for example, on the banking side, you begin to see some unlocks there. On the payment side, Pakistan does not yet have PayPal available. So international payment gateways, that kind of regulatory unlock would actually help unlock Pakistani engineering entrepreneurial base to be on the global gig economy, on global platforms as well. And Atif, I'm also interested in a country where conglomerates have traditionally dominated. Is there a change in attitudes these days toward entrepreneurs and business risk and a tolerance of business failure? Absolutely. I think there's a lot that's going right for the Pakistani startup ecosystem right now. So in terms of the culture, a few years ago, the brightest young minds, they'll choose to either go abroad or work for multinational companies in Pakistan, because that was the way to make the big bucks. That has completely changed. Now they all want to be founders or join startups as early employees. That's been a phenomenal culture shift. What that's driven is, in turn, the conglomerates are also seeing that writing on the wall and they want to partner with these startups 
Some of them are launching their own startups, which obviously has a mixed history. It's very hard for large companies to innovate and the model of startup within a company, you know, that often doesn't work out that well, but that recognition is there. And on the regulatory front, Pakistan has had some very forward thinking regulators in the recent years. They're quite keen on enabling startups because if you look at the macroeconomic situation of Pakistan, it doesn't look that great. You still have balance of payments issues. You cannot grow too fast because you don't have enough foreign reserves and that hampers your growth. The government and the regulators see this startups as an opportunity to break out of that cycle. So they've been very keen to help. We have seen several initiatives from the regulator side, most recent one being this establishment of S. TZAs, so special technology zones, which offer some very lucrative incentives to foreign investors in terms of tax breaks, in terms of cutting down the red tape. We've seen both the State Bank of Pakistan and SECP come up with regulations that enable structuring of these startups as holding companies abroad, coming up with licenses like NBFCs, now full digital banking licenses. And I think that's very vital that that continues. And Technology changes so fast that I think regulators need to keep up with that. And one area of improvement that you can see is crypto is currently banned in Pakistan. That's where a lot of startup and venture capital activities happening in the US and now increasingly in countries like Indonesia and India as well. I think that's sort of future growth will come from these areas. We want the regulators to continue unlocking these areas to drive momentum. Atif, I would love to ask you a question that I think you are uniquely positioned to help answer. It's an important one. In 2018, the U.S. dollar was equivalent to 123 Pakistani rupees. Cycle forward three years, 2021, it is 177 to a dollar. Significant devaluation. If you read the news, there is a chance for further devaluation. On the one hand, as someone who represents investors and invests on the behalf of foreign investors, currency depreciation is a challenge you have to work around. On the other hand, it certainly increases the export strength of Pakistan, the capital formation as well of the country. So in your position, how do you balance the two? How do you see the Pakistani currency playing a role in Pakistan's sharp ecosystem growth? That's a great question. Sometimes the policies that are helpful for the overall economy might not necessarily be equally conducive for startups. I think in this case, what's happening is if you take a 20-year view, so Pakistani rupee has been a weaker currency, we should be okay with that, that helps with exports. But the problem historically has been that it's been kept artificially at a steady level, and then there is a sudden drop, and I think that creates shockwave in the system. The current government has allowed it to float freely. I think the economy has been adjusting fine. Now, when it comes to startups, obviously, if you're earning in rupees and then you have investors who are foreign and you convert it to US dollars, your growth numbers don't look that impressive if there is a sudden drop. But if it's happening on an ongoing basis, actually you have the ability to reprice your services over time and it doesn't have as big of an impact. And the other mitigating factor is what I mentioned earlier, which is that most of the Pakistani startups that raise VC funding actually have this structure of a foreign hold go. Typically, it would be Singapore or Delaware. And what that means is, one, it makes funding easier. Two, you maintain your reserves in U.S. dollars in a foreign bank account. That means if you raise $10 million and the rupee depreciates by 10%, 
it doesn't affect you. Maybe it even helps you because now in terms of operating expenses, it translates that dollar stretches farther. So I think structurally, the ecosystem has worked to minimize the impact on startups. And overall, for the macro, it's the right thing to do. Abdur Rahim, you're perched in the MENA. How does Pakistan's ecosystem compare the evolution of ecosystems in that region? Are there any lessons or things we should watch out for in Pakistan's growth stemming from how things have gone so far in the MENA region? The MENA region is, as you can imagine, quite varied. Now, within it, the bulk of the investment side, typically come out of countries like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, natural resource-rich countries, much of that investment comes from the government, either directly in the government, via fund of funds investing, or via state-owned enterprises setting up investment funds. That, in some ways, capitalizes the market, especially early stages, very, very well. On the other hand, there are certain restrictions placed on where they can invest. It's government money, therefore you can't go invest it in other countries, which causes a bit of a unique flavor of entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Pakistan is more similar to a country like Egypt, you will, or if you leave the region, Ethiopia, developing countries, large populations, young populations. Right? Now, if you compare it to Egypt, for example, you similarly see in Egypt increasing growth and acceleration of both number of startups as well as funding going to startups. What Egypt has done well, like Pakistan, is attract foreign capital significantly. What it's also doing that I think is quite notable for us to learn from is a lot of startups are immediately more quickly going abroad. Right? So perhaps the largest startup in Egypt is Swivel. Swivel has headquartered in Dubai and they're aggressively expanding across multiple continents. So Pakistan begins to follow that kind of trajectory. And if it stays on that pathway more more quickly, there's a larger opportunity that the Pakistan talent base can draw from. Right. And is geopolitics still an issue for foreign investors going into the region? I know in years past, at certain points of time, security has been an issue for investors. Given the momentum we're seeing in Pakistan now, is that less of an issue? So in my conversations, this doesn't come up much at all. It used to be a big issue a decade ago, certainly. One of the things that created this opportunity when I was looking at it in 2018 was that Actually, from a security standpoint, things have been good for a while, but the perception hadn't caught up. I think in 2021, that perception caught up. So you started seeing this large influx. A good validation point of that is when Taliban took over again in Afghanistan, there was this question of what does that mean for Pakistan? But what we also saw was more VC funding announced in Pakistan in four weeks than in the four years prior, right? And that kept the momentum going. And what people realized that Pakistan of today is very different from Pakistan of 15, 20 years ago. So from a security standpoint, actually things look really, really good. We're seeing a lot more foreigners visiting and you see that perception change very quickly. I've spent time with foreign investors where within the first few hours, they're like, oh, wow, I had a completely different impression of Pakistan, but this is amazing in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the young vibrant population. The proof is and where the investments are coming from, whether it's Gobi or it's MSA from China, whether it's Kingsway from the UK, whether it's Tiger or Kleiner from the US or Shuruk from the UAE, it's clear from all corners of the globe, there is significant investment increasing in Pakistan. But if we peel a little 
more under the skin here. We've done a bit of research on this, Daniel. We're looking at the top 250 funded startups in the MNAP region. We asked ourselves, where do those founders and leaders come from? And what we found was in places like Pakistan and Egypt, the vast majority of founders are actually native born, who are much more enmeshed, entrenched in the local ecosystem and can navigate it. If you look at a place like the UAE, it's the opposite. North of 80% of leading founders and entrepreneurs are actually not from the UAE, they're expats. Saudis, roughly half. So the ability of the Pakistani ecosystem to be grounded in its own talent that knows how to navigate Pakistan makes it resilient to similar concerns. You mentioned the talent and the tech talent, the education, the number of engineers is a real asset for Pakistan. Obviously, finding enough good talent is an issue for all companies these days around the world. So is there enough of a base there to handle the growth of new startups coming on board? The volume is clear. Pakistan has roughly 190 accredited universities. We're talking over 290,000 graduates coming into the economy each year. There's plenty of talent. There's a question around quality of that talent. In the short term, if even a fraction of that is top quality, we just need enough startups, even corporates investing in innovation for them to get battle tested. So this space, I would expect, becomes a larger strength for Pakistan going forward. Interesting. Atif, how do you see that critical issue? Yeah, I'd agree with that. The raw numbers are there. But what we saw happen with Kareem was that a single company can catalyze so much of this talent and be the training place, which then creates all that senior talent that then goes on and feeds dozens of companies. But now that we're seeing this first layer of startups, this talent is coming up to speed very, very quickly. So I'm very bullish on that. The other dynamic that's playing into it, though, is that tech has gone remote. You know, that trend was happening anyway. It's been accelerated by COVID. And Pakistan is a net beneficiary of that because now a lot of companies are hiding from Pakistan. People sitting in Pakistan can work for a U.S. company. But that also puts pressure in the short term on that talent because now they're available to any company in the world. So we'll see some short-term pain, but I look at it as a positive in the longer term. And this talent working with the best in the world remotely, that's what's going to fill this gap for Pakistan going forward. So we're very excited that that's happening already. Today, it is very clear that e-commerce, logistics, the space disrupts are going into, the talent for that is available. As the ecosystem matures, and as I was mentioning, move towards SaaS startups, down the road, we're talking about machine learning, AI, that kind of talent is not here yet. So there's a challenge for the talent ecosystem to accelerate at the speed of which the startups will be created. What will be really interesting is you spent a lot of time working with the Pakistani diaspora, what you call the Wapistanis. How has that experience been for you? Do you see the diaspora coming back either as investors or operators in the ecosystem? Is that a core element of the talent in Pakistan? Yeah, absolutely. That has been the early seed of founders. So whether it was people who worked at Kareem or worked at US startups, so Airlift's founder, CEO, used to work at DoorDash, Bazaar's founders have worked at Kareem, Snapchat, and McKinsey. We've seen that 
play out quite a lot in the early days. And then it goes beyond that founders. So when I'm talking to the Pakistani diaspora, particularly in the US, what COVID has done is that there's always this desire of eventually going back. I think people realize that they are far from their family in this situation. It's accelerated that desire. So I'm hearing this more and more. And one of the things we are trying to do at Indus Valley is help accelerate that. So we have this track Wabistani track. So Wabistani is this term which was coined by Rabil Waraj, who founded Smayakar and other VC fund in Pakistan. It's a combination of Wapis, which means to return, and Pakistani. I love this term. So we've created a program around that that helps people move back more easily. You can connect them with founders, with startups here. You connect them with other people who are moving back. And I think that's a huge asset for Pakistan. And that will fill some of these specialized talent gaps that we spoke about earlier. I was wondering, Atif, I don't know if it's too early to see this, but in terms of scaling these startups in Pakistan, is there any kind of obstacles or challenges that startups have encountered? So we talked about talent earlier. I think that's a big one. The game just gets difficult at each level. So as you scale, going from a 10-people company to 100-people company to 1,000 people, it's a very different skill set that's required. And I think that is going to be a challenge. What we're seeing is that the best founders, they're stepping up. And as you bring on investors, particularly from the U.S., they have portfolio companies who have scaled And in a lot of cases, we are getting a lot of these operator investors investing in startups as well, in Pakistani startups. And that's super helpful because now you have access to somebody who's been there, done that, and you can get that mentorship. So from a founder perspective, I think that's how you address that problem. But then you also need that core leadership for finance, for HR. And that's just something we as an ecosystem will need to work on. Hopefully, there would be enough people coming back who can help and join some of these startups after they have been de-risked. So then financially, it actually makes sense for you to come back. That's number one. Number two is the need for funding is going to be there. So while we have seen now a couple of startups cross that 100 million plus in funding raised, I think as more startups get there, that's something that will continue to need to be happening. The good news is we have some very large crossover funds now investing. So Tiger Global has done multiple deals. Dragoneer has invested, Process has invested, and hopefully they'll continue to keep investing and we'll have more come and join them. But we need the soft banks of the world to also invest in Pakistan for those series C, D, E round. And then finally, there's a question of exits, right? We need to take some of these early startups all the way to M&A or IPO. And that's what then truly unlocks the ecosystem. Right. And Abdul Rahim, in an emerging ecosystem like Pakistan, how important is growing the domestic investor base? From the investor perspective, to me, that's the real question. I'm super excited about the names mentioned by Atif. We have Tiger Global, Clyer Perkins, Process, et cetera, coming in. But the question is, where is the Pakistani capital? While there are some large conglomerates that are getting in and investing, Fatima Ventures comes to mind via their JV with Gobi out of China, Fatima Gobi, and that's great. But by and large, many of the large conglomerates that have a lot of capital in the Pakistan ecosystem, and even more important than capital, they have assets, they have capabilities, they have networks, they have regulatory heft. Would love to see them a lot more involved and investing for a couple of reasons. One, the obvious one, there's capital. Second is resilience. 
So if the national capital markets begin to dry up or are less generous, would love to have local resilience in the space. That's something that is needed for the next S-curve, if you will. And I would assume if IPOs, or at least domestic IPOs, are going to become a realistic common exit strategy, you really have to get the domestic investor base interested in these kinds of companies down the line. I would love Atif's view on this, but if you look at the multiples in the Karachi Stock Exchange, if we're talking about domestic IPOs, they're not very high. If you begin to see where they could exit, an example is Anagami. Anagami is a streaming music business headquartered in Abu Dhabi, serves the MENA region. They recently exited via SPAC in New York at over north of a $200 million valuation. So there's potential to go via SPAC or other ways in foreign markets. There is lower risk once Pakistani startups go multi-market and have access to capital in multiple markets. But to be able to really nest the innovation in Pakistan itself, from a product perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from a market access perspective, it's critical to have the local industrialists. Atif, did you want to add anything in terms of the domestic investor base and potential for growth there going forward? Yeah. What we're seeing is that there is appetite among the local investors. A few family groups and conglomerates have started VC funds, and that's very encouraging to see. Now, it's still unclear if the really late stage funding rounds that Abdurrahim was talking about, if we are not seeing global funding continue at that level, whether that local capital will step up or not. But I think they started to get their feet wet. Now, the local capital markets are not that deep. And I think that's one of the things that will need to change for the smaller scale IPOs. As we have more and more startups, we can imagine that's the way to grow the capital base for Karachi Stock Exchange because you have newer, higher quality, higher growth companies coming in. But I think what's going to happen for this first wave of startups, they're going to be too big for the local capital market and they will have to go to international stock exchanges. And we can talk more about the exit options more broadly. I think there are going to be three classes of exits for early investors. So the first one is M&A, and that's going to be the most frequent one. Within that, you have your global category leaders buying regional players for expansion. So similar to Uber buying Kareem for $3 billion. That playbook is very well established. Same thing for quick commerce startups, DoorDash, already has been an acquisition spree in Europe. They'll eventually do the same in Asia. So that's a very important category. The second category within M&A is Chinese tech giants buying Pakistani tech companies. Already the two big exits that we've seen in Pakistan was Alibaba buying the Raz, which was an e-commerce startup, and Ad Financial buying a fintech Easy Passa, or rather taking a 45% stake in them. And we expect this to continue. The second category would be IPOs, which is local one we talked about. I think more exciting is Pakistani companies, especially the ones that grow to multi-billion dollar outcome actually going and listing, whether in Hong Kong or London or New York. And there are plenty of examples. Swivel is in the process to get listed in NASDAQ for $1.5 billion. We've seen Caspi from Kazakhstan go and have a $6 billion IPO in London. So I think the global capital appetite is there now for emerging market IPOs uh, in Pakistan should be a beneficiary of that. And the third category would be secondary. So if you are investing early enough, the likes of Process and Dragoneer and Tiger, they like to acquire 
and build ownership over time so they can provide some secondary liquidity as well. As we come to a close, I'm just wondering if each of you could just briefly give us a sense of where you expect or hope the Pakistan startup ecosystem to be in five to 10 years. If you look at the core reasons as to why investors are excited, the facts are undeniable. So the median age in Pakistan is 23 years. The UK by comparison is 41 years. It'll take a while (laughs) for the Pakistani median age to get up there. There are almost 90 million Pakistanis, either middle class or upper class. That's bigger than all of Germany. The simple size and the potential of the country is going to stay, which means to me that we are at the beginning of the journey for entrepreneurship, for digitization in Pakistan. How quickly this grows is the question, not whether it grows. Will it reach similar levels as Indonesia and other peer markets? I'm sure it will, and I'm sure they'll keep growing too. So the trend will continue. I think there is a lot of positive momentum. Many of the challenges we discussed are part and parcel of a growth journey of a digital, growing, developing country. Mm, Atif? So Abdurrahim put it really well. In 2019, I was, you know, using Indonesia as a model to compare what's in store for Pakistan. And Pakistan looks in terms of startups and VC funding activity, Indonesia of 2009. So there was this gap of 10 years. If you look at it today, it looks more like Indonesia of 2014 and 2015. So that's very exciting that Pakistani startup ecosystem is growing faster. And the fundamental reason for that is that while it had a late start, a lot of that foundation was in place, right? So the mobile adoption has taken place. Emerging markets are seeing much more capital influx than they did a decade ago. If you look at that $350 million of 2021, on the one hand, it's very, very fast growth, but it's still 0.1% of the GDP, right? So imagine once that catches up to the ratio that India has, I expect that Pakistan should be doing multiple billion dollars in VC funding every year. And given where the economy is, startups will become some of the biggest companies in Pakistan. So this is going to be the major driving force for the Pakistani economy in five years, not the traditional businesses. Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch as the growth journey continues. That does it for this episode. Thanks again to Atif Awan, founder and managing partner of Indus Valley Capital, and Abdur Rahim Syed, McKinsey partner based in Dubai, who co-leads the firm startup work in the region. Also, a big thank you, as always, to our entire McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Romtree, Myron Shurkin, and Katie Zamorowski. And finally, thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again for McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.